0: Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence. Brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Innovators on Innovators series. On today's episode, Amy Elliott, a scientist at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, sits down with former Lloyd CEO Melanie Lang to discuss the burgeoning additive manufacturing processes of binder jetting and directed energy deposition. Throughout the episode, the pair share the work they are doing with the respective technologies, as well as their experiences in securing patents and building businesses. They also discuss their education and backgrounds, their work in television, and provide insights on the workflow considerations for additive manufacturing processes, from parameter development, to the use of machine learning, to the analysis of data. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more Additive Insight, head over to tctmagazine.com, where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly Additive Insight newsletter for free.
1: All right. Hey Melanie, how's it going? Hey, Amy. Awesome. Okay, so I'm Amy Elliott. I'm a scientist at Oak Ridge National Lab. I study binder jet additive manufacturing. I've got a few patents, not to brag. Um, you know, lots of interesting work in that area. So it's been it's been a really fun career so far. Melanie, tell us about yourself.
2: I am an aerospace engineer by training, but now I am the co-founder and CEO at Form Alloy, where we design and manufacture directed energy deposition systems. So I'm really excited to talk more about where we're going and how we got here.
1: Your company is like so exciting to me. Like I could just talk to you for days and days about all the things that you guys are doing. I'm just so, super excited and um, just super excited to interview with you. Um, so where did you go to school,
2: Melanie. I went to undergrad at University of Illinois. I grew up in Illinois, so I'm a uh, Midwest girl and uh, went for aerospace engineering. That was always one of my interests growing up was space and space travel and constellations and studying those. And uh, so it was pretty interesting that I actually ended up in a field I had been interested in since a child. And uh, it was really exciting. Uh, and my senior design project was designing a, a transport vehicle for space tourism. And this was before, you know, space tourism was really a thing like it is now. Um, and and there, people are making it happen, it's pretty amazing. Um, so this is like in the early 2000s before it was really a thing. Um, so it's it's been really interesting in some ways going full circle and getting back into, supporting space applications uh that is doing really awesome things so that was a lot more than the question that you asked which is where i went to school um i also have a master's degree from university of southern california in systems architecture and engineering so but what about you amy i i forget where you where you went to school
1: yeah no worries no that's super cool actually we have a connection because i so i went to undergrad at tennessee tech um it's you know, a nice engineering school here in Tennessee. And I did all my co-ops at NASA Marshall um, in Huntsville, Alabama. So I was like awesome. the space geek, right? I was going to, you know, going to NASA. Um, and then senior year, I was like, I don't really want to get a job yet. So like, I applied <laughs> to grad school and like um, found a really great advisor and ended up studying how to do manufacturing, got a PhD in mechanical engineering. Um, and then when it was time to get a job, um, I had been married at that point and couldn't make the locations work with NASA, so I ended up actually at Oak Ridge National Lab, which I'm really, really grateful for because it's been a really cool career um, here. We just do—I—I'm um, I, not sure how much you've seen about Oak Ridge, but like you know, it's—it's—it's like—it's it's like, it's like the, amuse, the the Disneyland of 3D printing. It's just um, lots of cool people, lots of cool machines, and so. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I went to Virginia Tech for my PhD, and both both my degrees are in mechanical engineering, but. Still, still have that love for space I think every you know lots of lots of engineers do so <laughs> yeah
2: that's awesome I didn't I didn't know that we we shared that that childhood dream in common
1: <laughs> I think I also secretly well it's not going to be a secret anymore but like you know I think we all secretly like think oh one day I'm going to apply the astronaut program I'm going to go to space right and like I have to keep reminding myself it's like you have asthma, you're not an athlete, like you're not going to, maybe you would be a good researcher on the space station, but you would not pass the physical fitness test. So um, anyway, I don't know if you do, do you want to be an astronaut? You know,
2: I, I want to build things that help the astronauts get to space, but I'm actually okay. Like letting someone else take that journey. Um, I'm not as much of an adrenaline junkie, Um, so I'm like super interested in the technology. I'm like, take all the pictures and send me all the data so I can absorb it. Um, But I don't actually have to go on the journey myself.
1: (laughs) Understandable, yeah, that's a very good point. I'm sure when it came down to it, I probably would not have the guts. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So, like after you went to school, where did you work
2: first? So I spent uh, my time in college and undergrad in a co-op program with Boeing in St. Louis. And so that's sort of where I got my first exposure to the aerospace and defense industry. And then I went to work at Lockheed Martin full-time and I stayed there for almost 15 years um, doing engineering, uh, program management and even some business development. And really that's where I learned and honed most of the skills that I still use today. Um, And it was, a great experience. I had a, an awesome career in aerospace and defense, and I think they do a really good job of investing in training their people so that way they can go on to do great things, whether it be within the company or, you know, branching out and, and turning into an entrepreneur. So it was, had a lot of fun with that.
1: Well, that's awesome. I've never had that kind of insight into a company like that, but that's really a nice story. Um So yeah. So what led to you starting your company?
2: Well, I got into 3D printing as a hobbyist in like the 2009, 2010 timeframe when, you know, Maker Faire started coming up and people had these little 3D printers that you could, you know, have in your homes. It was a very new kind of novel thing. I was interested because I thought it was cool. People were printing like jewelry and stuff with it. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I need to look into this. And at the same time, I'm dealing with and sealing more challenges in my, in my, My full time job. Um, Basically, that involves supply chain issues and getting the right parts to the right places at the right time. And when I was able to print things at home, if something would break or I needed a a fixture, a mount for a doorbell or something, I could print it at my home. It really started having me think, you know, what if you could do this in an application I'm seeing at work with, you know, metal components that are maybe in an austere location, you know, challenging to get to on an aircraft carrier. How do you create or repair parts on demand locally to support some of these really challenging uh, use cases? Um, And that's when the light bulbs kind of went off to say, hey, 3D printing is more than, you know, printing little tchotchkes for your desk or, you know, printing little things that you need around the house. Like this can really impact how things are made and how systems are maintained. That's
1: awesome. So um I would never I could never start a company. I don't have that kind of guts. Maybe, maybe in a little while, but I so admire any entrepreneur who can just step out like that and you know start something from scratch like you have. Like that is just super duper exciting. Um and like uh I know that we've we've talked before about how, you know, when you started your company and you knew. Um, you knew you wanted to do this, like you you thought very, very hard about the technology you wanted to focus on, right? So, like maybe tell me a little bit about that. Like, how did you come to the decision of using directed energy deposition or DED? Yeah,
2: that yeah, I started researching different technologies, and the reason why I chose direct energy deposition is because it can support such a wide range of use cases, and it really is a fairly simple, well, uh, well-used technology if you if you think about its roots in welding and um, the fact that you can build a part um, you know quickly you can add material to an existing part either for repair or to enhance it and then now we're doing things I wasn't even thinking of then which is using it to develop new alloys and you know functionally graded materials where a part may perform differently in different sections and um, that's really what Led me to believe this technology is is one of the paths to the future of how things are manufactured. Um, you know, at the time, powder bed was was already pretty popular, and I would say like the most popular in terms of metal 3D printing. But I did see some limitations to those systems, for example, with size and throughput, and when you talk about repair or even being able to change from one material to another. And so I think you know, powder bed has done an excellent job of um, Making some awesome applications and really enabling some technologies, um, and, and now DED is there to sort of pick up some of the areas where where powder bed has left off. So um, I think there'll always be a place for that, as well as binder jetting technologies too. You know, I view these different technologies as all they're all part of uh, an ecosystem, which is important. So you always have to look at your application and determine what technology is the best. But when I set out to do this and I looked at the different types of technologies and thought about, you know, laser versus other energy sources and, um, you know, metal powder versus wire and, you know, cold spray technologies and looking at them holistically, I really just felt like DED was going to be the most versatile and having really the biggest impact um, to how things were made. So.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I, in jet, you know, we all we all have our favorites, Um, binder jetting is something I've been working in for a long time, but we have a saying is like, you know, there's never the right size build box and there's never the right size furnace. And those two things, you know, it's just, um, it's just part of it. But yeah, they all have their niches. And, um, you know, for sure, I think a lot of people are realizing that it's really hard to deploy a powder bed (laughs) in, you know, a remote area that powder is just, you know, it's it's an explosion waiting to happen i guess right like sometimes like yeah. what it is um uh it's it's kind of you know the safety around that is is not trivial so so yeah it makes a lot of sense and and so so your machines are they wire fed or powder fed are uh, there are powder fed okay um, so I, yeah i know there's an yeah. advantage to that yeah go ahead
2: yeah it's um you know with the powder it's very simple to change over materials to do things like functionally grading And, uh, you still get very good surface finish and material properties that are similar to powder bed. So you can get very similar characteristics and material performance as you get into powder bed without having to deal with the bed of powder and the, you know, the, the slower time. Um, and then of course, compared to binder jetting, you know, it's all about the material properties. Um, so there's, you know, different applications for that, but, um, I mean, what do you see? Because I don't know that much about binder jetting, to be honest with you. I only know, you know, high-level research enough enough to know the differences with, you know, DED. But what are some of the killer applications that you've been researching, or that you're working on, or that you see in the future?
1: Yeah. So um, I will say the the one big killer app for binder jet is this kind of metal injection molding replacement. Okay. So binder jet has the speed. Um, and you know, with speed comes cost, right? um, there there really is no no other metal additive manufacturing technology that can touch binder jet in terms of cost <laughs> because it is so fast. Like you know you're you're printing huge batches of parts at a time. you know, you're processing them all in big batches, you know, in a big furnace, but curing them in that kind of thing. Um, and so the price points there to so definitely, you know, in auto you know automotive parts, these you know metal injection molding these small parts um it's I think the business case is clear there for sure and so now um the the technologies that we need to um develop are just you know reliability basically you know can these machines um run lights out with these powders um you know can we have qualification that kind of thing um and then also take out some of the manual um manual labor so like I don't know if you've ever run a binder jet machine or seen one but like after you print it, you have a green part, which is like fragile, it's like chalk, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you have to like dig it out of the powder bed, like an archaeologist, you know, you have like yeah. and vacuums and stuff. And like, so if you have like a whole build box with like a thousand parts in it, like that's really tedious and that takes a long time. And so like, how can we um, make that, you know, avoid the manual part of that, you know, either automate it or find another solution. So that's been actually a core piece of our research for years and years. It's not not an easy problem to tackle um but yeah that's i think um you know we've already seen a lot of adoption for binder jet on small parts and i think it's just going to grow
2: yeah that's awesome so what can you tell me about some of the patents i think it's so awesome i mean you've done so many amazing things had such an awesome education and and just looking at your resume what what you've done and some of the other you know things that you've done with community service and Um, inspiring, you know, young girls to pursue, you know, STEM careers and all that. I think it's awesome. But the fact that you also have your own patents is amazing. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like your patents or maybe your favorite one, Um, whatever you can share?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think to me, like patents are like that, that's kind of like telling you, like you did something useful, right? Like it's a validation (laughs) of like your. That your life, I guess, like for me at least, not that not having patents, you're not validated, but like for me, like that's always like in my mind, like is this worth doing, you know? Anyway, so so yeah, um, my first patent was actually at NASA, and we were um making this uh, kind of, it's like a power generating thing. So if you go to the moon or something, and you can't use a solar panel because it's this extreme environment, like radiation and stuff, like can you make like a little mechanical widget that will still um, collect solar energy and turn it into to you know electricity or something. And so I didn't have all the details I was an intern. I just knew I needed to make this little thing work. So it was like a blinking mechanism. So there's a wire, a shape memory alloy wire and a little mirror behind it that was curved. And so like when the sun when the sun shone on this, it would make the wire hot. And then it would contract and then the idea is that it would pull this like little cover over it so it could cool itself off well they couldn't get this little cover thing to toggle properly and so me being the intern i had like all summer to just sit in the shop and figure this out and so finally got it working um and because it was working like we got the patent and everything and so that was like super duper exciting um but awesome. about patent, yeah <laughs> The downside about patents is they take like years to get awards. Yes. Award. Yes. <laughs> like I had totally forgotten about it. And then one day they're like, hey, this patent was awarded. It's like, oh, that's awesome. So um, but yeah, like I love um, I love working at Oak Ridge because because we're working so closely with industry, like we're working on things that are important. And because they're important, like there is a better potential for patent. And so um I think you know, that's just been the the secret to the success to the success here, I guess, is just that I'm in a great place for it for technology development. So
2: that's awesome. That's yeah. Well, hats off to you for having patents and doing all this amazing research and really helping the whole industry move forward.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah. I I love it. I am really glad I landed on this job. So, okay. I want to talk about, um, your machine design. Now this might not be a super interesting topic to, you know, maybe normal people will call it. <laughs> but I think it's super interesting, the story behind how you put your machines together, because you chose to build these, your your platforms from the ground up with very specific selection, you know, part selection choices, controller selection choices. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. So when we, when we set out to, uh, to do this and to build a machine that in my mind, would be capable of building and repairing, enhancing aerospace components, we thought that we would take some of the existing components on the market, put them together, and then really enhance it through automation and software, and you know, make these sheet machines capable of running lights out and doing automated parameter development and that kind of thing. What we found when we started the integration is that we really did need to be very vertically integrated, so that way we could control every step of the process. Because if you have, you can have an awesome um, plan for automation, and you can have, um, you know, a great, great slicing software. But if your powder flow is not consistent, you are not going to get high quality builds. That's a very, very important aspect of it. And and your powder flow has to do with your powder feeders and your deposition head. So we just felt like since that was such a key aspect of the process and getting those consistent high quality builds we needed to take control over those aspects of the machine. So we, um, we started by designing our own head. Uh, then we did the powder feeders and our own control system was really necessary because of all of the in-situ monitoring and control we wanted to be capable of that would be fully integrated. And then also having access to the data that comes off of those machines. So, of of course, it's challenging if you're taking other people's components and putting those things together and then expecting to have, you know, that level of detail um, is very challenging. And so we were we were able to to do that. And now we're very vertically integrated and um, design most of the key components of the machine ourselves. And uh, it's been very fruitful. It was challenging at first because we were we were taking on a, a lot as a new company and then doing all this design of things that were already kind of available on the market. Um, but now it's, it's really paying dividends and, um, we're able to see the, the results of all that hard work.
1: That's awesome. But then there's also a data collection component to this story, right? Like because, because you chose certain components, you're able to collect data off of them. Tell me, tell me about that.
2: Yeah. So we knew that it was very important to look at the data and being, and, and make, make decisions based on the data in terms of what's happening during the build. And uh, so we equipped our machines with uh, various sensors. So for example, we're looking at the melt pool shape and the melt pool temperature, and then we're making decisions about what to do next in the build based on those sensor readings. And when the build is complete, you have access to all of the raw data associated with that build. And um, right now, there's about 100 different parameters that we're looking at and recording. And then you can analyze those. And uh, we also provide a summary report, which basically shows the key variables, how they vary over time. If you want to look at from one build to the next, it'll show you Uh, you know, variations between those builds, you can set different uh, target points. So that way your build never uh, varies more than what you've identified for some of those key parameters. Um, So it's just a really, a really great tool, Um, especially with this process, people are still sort of building trust in the process and building up their data sets. And our view is that if you have access to Exactly how a part was made, and you can correlate those parameters to how the part performs and the quality of the, perf- the part. Then, as you move forward, you can do less of that destructive testing, less tensile pulls, because you know what makes a good part, and you can correlate to material performance. Um, you sh- you can get to a point in the future of having a digital build certification, uh, which would be you know, really reduce the cost. And let's say if you change a, a material or change a geometry slightly, there will still always be some testing required, of course. But you can really use the the power of the data. We say harness the power of data to make decisions on both in situ during your build and then after a build, if a part is good or not good. Awesome.
1: Yeah, I remember that slogan on your uh, booth. I, I, yeah. uh, I think it was TMS was it was not TMS it was the big sh- the Michelin IMTS yes. IMTS yeah that's right that's yeah cool. yeah that's a good show um yeah so um awesome no that's 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 super exciting because um here at here at Oak Ridge, we do um a lot of in situ monitoring we have this um software actually um it's called Peregrine which is like like I don't know like software people like will pick an animal and then they will just go down different types of animals for the different versions. Which I, anyway, or maybe they all pick birds. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what the trend is here, but the <laughs> name of <is> Peregrine. <laughs> um, because there's also Linux. That's not a bird. Anyway, so uh Peregrine is a way to um like train a machine learning algorithm. So you you know it's it it's like it's like a really nice way to um look at all the images and the data you collect and then like tell like train the images right um and so we've been working on that for a long time but we have nowhere near 100 data points per voxel like you do so like when i heard that that was just like that was just like mind-blowing to me um because i'm you know i'm with you i think you know every every little thing that you can monitor you should because who knows like you run three D printers. I've run three D printers. Even the tiniest little thing, like a fan going out for just a split second, can mm-hmm. throw something off, right? So it's like super yeah. important to know everything that you can. So, um, and I honestly have not heard about a company or a, or a machine um, that has that capability. So that's that's super duper
2: exciting. Yeah, thank you. No, it's been it's been interesting. And to your point about you know monitoring, it's it's not just a matter of you know, more data is better kind of thing, right? Um, but it's really going through years of experience and saying when we have had some issue with the build in the past and we've had to get to a root cause of of what was the cause, you know, well, um, you know, th- this happened and, and that happened and going back in time and figuring out what was the actual root cause that, that triggered whatever failure happened. And that's what has driven our decision of what to censorize. So for example, now we're, we're doing things like monitoring the temperature and temperature variation of our cover glass, because that can be a leading indicator of a future failure. If, if you have something going on, you have debris that's starting to build up on your cover glass, we can sense that before it will make an impact on the build. So that's just one example of, you know, we we would have never thought when we were starting, you know, seven or eight years ago, Hey, we need to put a sensor on the, on the optic, um, uh, cover glass and, and see what the temperature looks like. But we've had a couple of failures now where it goes back and back and it ends up being, oh, okay. It's not a laser problem. It's not a powder problem. You have your, your cover glass is dirty. And if you, you know, if you don't fix it, then it's going to get worse and worse. Right. But even if you notice some variation, you can trace it back to something. And um, so that's, you know, that, that's sort of what's driven, you know, what to sensorize and whatnot. Um, and then the other part of it I want to mention is that we have a framework in place. And by the way, we call this framework and our controller and all the associated software with it, we call it dead smart or DED smart. Um, and um, that's essentially a framework. So in the future, new sensors can be added to that framework as well and added to our controller. So that way you're getting that, that timestamp data, which is you know really important because you don't need disparate sensor data that you have to figure out. Okay, now how do we register this? You know, when the build's done and, How do we know at any point x, y, and z? You know what all the speeds and feeds were. So having a timestamp sensor that's fully integrated is very important. Um, But we can add in additional sensors, you know, later on. So um, for example, we we did a project with NASA where we were doing some builds with acoustic sensors. So we had a an AE an acoustic emission sensor in the machine, and we're recording that data as well. Uh, So we're always you know interested to learn about you know, new sensors. So Amy, if you're having any sensors in your lab, and you're just like, you have to try this sensor because we're getting some really interesting predictive information or analytic information from this sensor, something you might not think of, right? Who I would never have thought of an acoustic sensor several years ago. Um, tell us, because we would love to try to, you know, integrate it. And we're always doing whatever we can to make our builds, you know, run more efficiently. I will. I actually have one
1: in mind. We will talk offline because this could okay, be awesome. the Okay, thing. <laughs> Maybe not. We'll see.
2: Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Paul Miller, 3D Systems Materials Product Marketing Manager, introduces Duraform PAX, a new novel SLS nylon photopolymer that promises great mechanical properties for prototypes and end-use parts, long-term stability, and unexpected low cost
0: of ownership.
3: DuraForm PAX is a new family of products that uh, we developed in partnership with uh, AMS Ams Tech. And what we're really excited about is it's innovation in this space where there hasn't been a ton of types of materials. DuraForm PAX is durable, it's tough, it um, has really high elongation and is really flexible. So it opens up a lot of application possibilities. It prints at a very low temperature, which is actually one of its strengths because it's easier on printers and has a really high recycling rate. What we're also really excited about is some of the operational benefits. It is faster to handle. Uh, you can remove it, the part cake the machine faster after printing and the breakout of parts. And, and that's where some of the financial benefits help our customers as well. When people hear new and novel, they, they typically jump to it's gotta be expensive. Um, but, but our pricing strategy with DuraForm PAX was intended to encourage adoption as a go-to material, particularly for those customers that are looking for prints with unspecified properties. So you, you still get all those great mechanical properties that we we talked about, but at generally a lower cost. And then it's the operational benefits. It's the ease of printing. It's the operator intervention, the less service. You don't have any sublimation, which is one of the big challenges people experience with PA11s. Our customers have come to us and said they're really excited to be able to offer an SLS, material uh, to their customers that that they can ship within 24 hours which is is truly remarkable
2: this material is intended for end-use parts you've got long-term stability and in some cases properties that make it indistinguishable from injection molded parts can you talk about that
3: Today we have two different variants and it's a family that we expect that will, will grow in the future. We have a, a natural color and a black color. We've tested the color and the mechanical properties out over five years for indoor and outdoor over a, a year and a half. And the tensile strength, the elongation and color all hold up. From the look and the aesthetics of the material, particularly when you vapor hone it, you're able to get some translucency that opens up new applications. So anything where you're trying to look at liquids and anything with thin walls, you'll get that really nice translucency. It's it's been described from our customers as looking like a a rigid polypropylene. For the black material, uh, instead of the translucency, you get an additional sheen. So some of these sample applications that we've made is we've introduced texture onto the parts and then vapor honed it, by doing that, it really looks like an injection molded plastic. One of the examples I like to talk about is some of our engineers that work on all these different materials in, in our office and showing these uh, vapor honed SLS parts, people are shocked to believe that they're, they come from SLS.
2: To learn more, head over to mytct.co forward slash 3
0: pod or visit 3dsystems.com.
1: that's super duper exciting. Um, and like, I know that, um, this is just, you know, it's kind of hard to wrap your, at least for me, it's kind of hard to wrap my head around like where this could be going because it just, it feels like there's so much more to do, right? Like this is a lot of data and you know, we don't, maybe, you know, but I don't know exactly what to do with at all. Right. Like, and we don't exactly, and maybe you do, but having the right um software to interpret it um having the right you know tests on the back end to to validate you know like what you suspect that kind of thing like you know there's a lot of um very laborious tests you could do so like one thing that we do a lot here that is really cool um but it takes a long time is the serial microstructure the serial um slicing right so like you you take a you etch you take a microstructure and then you cut off a layer right and so you're you're actually building that i don't even know what that's called i'm not a material scientist sorry but like that one like gives you a really cool image of your actual like 3d grain structure right like um it's amazing and that's like but it takes like a long time to do that so you can't do that with everything um but anyway yeah like to me i think um you know this is just the next generation and we're just at the cusp of it and like, who knows? Like, fifty years from now, or something. Like, every part ever made for anything that a person uses <laughs> will have so much data related to it. Um, I don't know. It's just it's exciting, but then it also like makes my head hurt. So <laughs>
2: yeah, no, it is a little daunting if you have you know these huge data sets, and then you're kind of like you know what now? Um, and that's why I think it is important to have you know not just the data, but you know correlated data, um, parsable data. And you know tools that that go along with it. Um, so we have Dead Smart Visualize, for example. So you can upload the raw data files, and then you can plot whatever you want to plot, or you can compare different files, and you know very quickly uh, take the data set and make it a lot more digestible. And um, that build report that I mentioned that we generate after each build—it's usually about ten to twelve pages, and it includes all the you know serial number of all the different components that were used, you know, in the machine like the serial number for the powder feeders and everything so you can trace it all it has really good traceability. And um, any type of, you know, operator, you know, checklist or information and then sort of data that we've um try to condense a little bit so that way anybody can look at the report and kind of digest what's in it and not just be overwhelmed by, you know, gigabytes of data. So but it will be interesting to see what the future holds with that. And I think obviously, like the work that you've done um, at Oak Ridge and your team and in the machine learning is very interesting because we've done a really good job of um, we can predict certain things and we can certainly make changes in the build based on what we're seeing. And then, of course, afterwards, doing analysis on the data is, you know, pretty well defined, you know, coming up with this digital build report. Um, those are all pretty well defined, but how do you or can you use machine learning uh, during your build to basically do what you're doing right now in your in your post build analysis and data correlation? You know how do you how do you do that real time? And I think that's one of the keys. We have some tools for sort of this automated parameter development work. Um, I think if you can get to the point where you can do more with like some of the algorithms that you're developing, um, I think you can you can really shorten that whole parameter development you know, cycle.
1: Oh my gosh. That is my dream to just like put powder in the printer that I've never printed before. And then just like leave, right? Like hit print and leave <laughs> and let the machine take care of it. Right. And so, um, no, that, that's absolutely, uh, very important because I don't know, um, with the powder that you work with. Um, so I, I work with like actually a lot of ceramic powder, which is not the best for binder jet <laughs> because, um, most of the systems have hoppers, and ceramic powder just does not want to flow through hoppers. Like at least the the white oxide ceramics. Um, so anyway, yeah, like it's a super pain in the butt. Like I was actually like with the build. I guess this was last week. Like poking poking the little opening in the hopper with like a zip tie between every layer to like try to get the powder <laughs> to flow through. Like it was the most annoying thing ever. Um, and so yeah, it was. Uh, so so I'm with you. Like that would be amazing if like the machine could. kind of figure it out on its own um but yeah that's kind of what our software can do like we've demonstrated that um we uh actually were able to like induce short spreading so in a powder bed like sometimes your hopper will just clog and you don't get enough powder on the layer and then you get this little gap at the end of the layer after the roller comes over and so we call that short spreading and so we like purposely did a short spread and we had already trained the machine to figure you know to know what that looks like and so we were actually able to to like make an algorithm that you know signal the machine that hey this is a problem this is how you fix it and so it would adjust the hopper settings so it would do a little bit more of a recoat until that problem went away and like when i saw that i was like this is the coolest thing ever um but you know what that takes though is that you do actually have to get into the um manufacturers like machine you know actual like um uh firmware right like you have to get the keys to the black box which we actually ended up um doing something a little bit different but um no i think that's um super important i really wish that uh people would start building that at standard so that you can you know do your own machine learning training for your machine like that'd be super cool Um, yeah
2: because the other thing too is like to your point of you have to stand there and you're kind of like poking at the powder Anytime an operator touches a machine, you basically lose your repeatability, right? Because even if you take notes and say, at this time, I poked the powder, no one's going to do it at the exact same time or exactly the same way. So that's kind of our view that it's, it's sort of, yeah, you don't want your operator touching your machine when it's, when it's running, um, because you will never be able to recreate exactly what they did, um, if you do that. Um, so yeah, I think, uh. Anything you can do to automate it. um, I mean, that's certainly what we're all about. That's
1: awesome. Well, on that note, like, do you see, I think, um, I don't know, like, I'm sure you have your hands full with what you're doing, but I can see a definite need for this um, strategy of yours and this knowledge that you have of how to build machines (laughs) um, to be expanded to like other platforms. I don't know. Have you ever thought about that to like, you know, reach out to other I don't know. You could reach out to the binder depth community. I mean, they've got some good machines out there, but I think everyone could benefit from this this type of strategy.
2: Yeah, we we are actually looking at offering our platform that could be integrated with other technologies. Um, so that's something because we have been approached um, many times, not only from people that are doing ded or interested in ded, but yeah, like you're saying, other types of technology are thinking, man, we could really benefit from. This level of control of the process and and the this level of access to data. So we are looking at: is there a way that we can um, sort of productize that offering and make it available? You know, outside of of ded applications.
1: Awesome, cool. I hope I didn't let a cat out of the bag, but I no, no, that. it's all good. <laughs> Do you have a favorite part you've ever built?
2: Kind of on the spot here. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, yes, I do. I have I have a lot of, um, I mean, anytime we do anything for aerospace, you know, any new space company or NASA, I just get super excited just because I've loved that stuff since I was a kid. So anytime I'm making any kind of, you know, rocket nozzle build or doing a new material for NASA and figuring out process parameters for that new material and feasibility, I get super excited. Um But in terms of like my favorite part that we ever made and then like used right away was probably the uh, we made a part for uh, BattleBots last season and just being a part of that was so much fun. Um, And it was awesome to see that we built this part very quickly within a few hours basically overnighted it to Vegas uh, to the team that was there. And then, and then I went there a couple of times too, during filming um, supporting uh, team ghost Raptor was the team I was part of. And it was awesome because they had to use these uh, it was basically like a grill. So it was like these teeth that were protecting um, one of their weapons, which was this blowtorch. And they had just been using plastic before that. And just knowing that, you know, and it was a 3d printed part. So it's sort of this complex you know, teeth-looking thing, and um, it was just a part they just had to keep on. You know, getting rid of the problem was it wasn't very strong. And in BattleBots, there's all these you know spinning kind of lawnmower blade things and these big, heavy spinning tools, and so um, it was easy for that that weapon to get taken out because they just had this plastic piece that was just more there for aesthetics than actually protecting it. And um, we were able to make them a new grill using a high strength aluminum alloy. So it's still very lightweight, which is also important for battle bots because the whole robot can only weigh, I think it's 50 pounds or something like that. It's not very much for all the stuff it has to be able to do. Um, so it was awesome to see even when the, the, uh, robot, um, it's not really a spoiler anymore because it was on last season. Um, the robot got completely destroyed in one of the battles. And, and the grill was one of the, you know, things that was sort of left standing and still pretty good shape. So, um, definitely did its job. It, it's just fun, um, use case. And, and just the fact that you can go from, you know, we get a design in the morning, we print it and we overnight the part and it's, it's running on a robot the next day is, I mean, that's really an awesome use case in general for added manufacturing, although, you know, kind of a silly one, but
1: that is too funny. Hey, did you know that I was on a reality show? Speaking of TV. Do we talk about this?
2: No, tell me.
1: Okay. So I, this was like 10 years ago now, I think. Yeah. Actually like 10 years ago, but okay. So it was like, so I always wanted to be on BattleBots. I was in like first robotics, but like, um, never did it, but I ended up in grad school. There was a casting call that went around for a show called top engineer. I was like, Oh, that sounds fun. And there's a few people that like, Saw the call too. And was like, hey, you should apply because like, don't want to brag, but like, I could like fix stuff in the lab, you know, like a lot of shop experience and like, you know, um, I got the Everywhere I went, I would get the nickname MacGyver, which actually isn't honestly that much of a compliment because MacGyver's like fixing things with like bubble gum and paper clips and stuff, you know. But anyway, um, so like I, I was like, okay, fine, like I'll apply and like. I got on the show, and though when we got there, though, um, they like we had packed up our lives for like the seven week filming, um, and we're sitting there talking to the producers, and like they changed the name from Top Engineer to Big Brain Theory, and we're all just like, what the heck? Like I would have never signed up for a show called Big Brain Theory,
2: (laughs) but that's awesome.
1: Yeah, but they figured that it was like you know people that wouldn't wouldn't want to go home and like watch a show about engineers were like. That's fair. So um, anyway, so it was like this reality competition where there's like 10 of us, um, there were eight challenges, eight episodes, and we got to build this like crazy stuff like waterfall elevator and like my favorite was like this like pancake making machine where we just like the challenge was just like feed as many people as fast as you can. Um, And so like we made like this tiered pancake machine where we had like a layer of griddles and we'd like dispense batter on there and then they would cook and they'd flip over into the next. And then, so like we made, I, I love <laughs> pancakes. So this was like my favorite thing I've ever built, but um That's yeah, awesome. so like, yeah, it was like super crazy. And so I got second place on it, which was way better than I thought it would do. <laughs> <laughs> um But yeah, it was a really, really neat experience. And I say once in a lifetime experience, cause I'm over, only ever doing it once. Like it was super stressful. And by the end, like I like could not finish the build. Like I was so exhausted. Like I had to just like sit and watch other people work. It was so bad. Um, but yeah, but then I, after that I got onto science channel, I've done some episodes of a show called outrageous acts of science. I'm on like a few seasons of that. And yeah, so that's awesome. I know. I'm like, but I'm like, I didn't take off. Like it just stopped. And so I'm like, I I have to stay a scientist, (laughs) which is fine too, but um, anyway, that's yeah, like film, like film is real, really interesting, right? Like you were on set, like, um, you wouldn't think it, but like the production assistants and everyone, they're just like super nice to you, right? Like they're like more nice than anyone else. And I guess it's because like they could get fired really quickly or something. I don't know. But <laughs> it's like It's like a different experience than what you would think, right? So yeah, anyway, that's really fun that you got to be on that show. Like I'm super jealous because I've always loved BattleBots, but...
2: Well, I know that they are always looking for teams that represent a diverse, you know, background. So, I think that you and I should co-lead an all female battlebots team and we'll think of some awesome name.
1: That would be awesome. Let's do it. I can't think of anything right now, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. We'll come
2: up with something. Or maybe when people are listening to this podcast, they'll think of something and they can like put in the comments what they think our BattleBots team should be.
1: That's right. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Listeners, you have to come up with our BattleBots team name. It has to be cute and fierce. <laughs> and we'll
2: come up with a prize of whichever one we think is the best name. Yeah. They'll get a 3D printed something. We'll send them. <laughs> something. Wait, I have one question for you. Sorry. We're having some we're doing some production right now. So it's a little loud. Um, did you use any 3d printing when you were on the, the big brain theory? Like I wish, but the problem was
1: like, we only had like a few days per challenge. And like, that is like, we know that's not enough time to like, and all the stuff that we built was like super big, right? Like, okay, um, like, like, you know, this big, um, I don't even know what to call it anymore but it was like a giant frame that had a motor on it that we spun this like stick with a propeller on it and so it was kind of like those little those little um toys that you like spin like this but it was like oh a yeah giant one and so like anyway all the stuff we built was like welded steel and like machined metal and you know big big crazy stuff so yeah i wanted to like i really wanted to and even actually like um i pitched an idea and like it was just like no this is not gonna work so it um, sounds like you needed a DED machine because we can build stuff within a couple hours yeah <laughs> and you know and what and, and all that too <laughs> no that would have been perfect because but this was back in um 2013 so um i don't know if it would have existed but you're absolutely right like that would have been amazing i can actually think of a, several parts that we could have printed and saved a bunch of
2: time and so yeah next well, one maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have the, the first maybe we'll have the first fully 3D printed battle bots. We should do that. That would be amazing. I think And we can, can use sort of all like we can we can make it, you know, where where all the different technologies have a role because we'll need metal, we'll need polymers, we'll maybe something ceramic um and and we'll bring in all the technologies and have different parts for each technology like come together and really show the full power of additive.
1: Yeah, we should totally do it. Well, we have to win though, just so you know.
2: Yeah, we can we can win. I'm pretty we sure. Win. We can put an awesome team together.
1: Pretty awesome. No, that's a great idea.
2: I was just gonna ask you, like, if you have any like final thoughts of like in general, like you know, there's been a lot of um change in additive manufacturing. Obviously, there's you know, economic things going on. Um, there's been a little bit of um highs and lows in additive manufacturing and you know e- economy in general but certainly with additive manufacturing. Um I guess like are you still like really excited about the technology and hopeful or like wh- where do you see like the next like year or two like taking us?
1: Yeah so I feel pretty I guess kind of lucky because um binder jet is still at the very beginning of like its life and so there's still a whole lot to explore. Like we're getting into ceramics now and it's just, the, the field is wide open. So I'm like, I'm really, really excited for at least binder jetting. I know, um, like, I'm not sure about the other technologies. Like I think DOD, DED is actually in the same position, right? Like it's yeah. not, you know, like laser's like the one that everyone has been studying so much and has been invested in the most. And so like, maybe they've kind of plateaued in their, um, I don't know, capabilities, maybe, maybe not. Um, But I feel, I feel really excited for um, at least binder jetting because um, like I said, like we just, there's just so much left to explore. Like we've, we've explored like such a little bit of the capability there. So.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really similar with DED. It's like the technology is ready now. There's really good applications for it. And now we have all these new things coming up, like new alloy development and alloy optimization, which is all perfect fit for DED. So Yeah, I share your excitement. So I'm glad to hear you're excited because I'm still really excited about the industry too. When
1: you, when you start doing new materials, it's like, oh wow, there are so many materials out there. Right. And then like you can develop ones too. So I don't know, like, that's really exciting. That just opens it all up is like when you're doing materials development, I should have been a material scientist, honestly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think you've done well with what you, with what you've done. (laughs) Thanks.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, did. I mean, that's so fun. Um, I'm every time I talk to you, I just feel so, so um, lucky to, to get to hear your story. And, um, it's just so amazing to me what you've done and I'm excited to see what you do in the future.
2: Thank you so much, Amy. Yeah. I feel like, you know, you're this incredible female leader that has inspired so many other young, uh, students and women, and, uh, I hope that we can find a way to work together some way or through BattleBots, if nothing else. All right, I'll send you a BattleBot sketch right after this. Okay, (laughs) let's do it.